Welcome to Feminist History. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Feminist History wherever you listen to podcasts. Please go rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Also, for previews and schedule updates, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at fem underscore history. That's at F-E-M-M-E underscore history. Now on with the show. the life of Nellie Bly part one right as Bly completed her trip around the world in 72 days, beating the fictional character Phileas Fogg from Jules Verne's classic novel Around the World in 80 Days. On January 25, 1890, at 3.51 p.m., riding aboard the fastest train in the United States, Nellie Bly pulled into the train station in Jersey City, New Jersey, as hundreds of adoring fans cheered, hooped, and hollered at her achievement. It signaled a new age of modern travel and technology, as well as a shift in perspective on female travelers. Bly had done what no one thought a girl could do. She circled the globe as an independent female traveler, honor intact, and lived to tell about it. She wrote of her newspaper's decision to send her, quote, no doubt about it. The New York world, in sending its bright little correspondent upon such a novel yet hazardous mission, has with one unique stroke accomplished more for my sex than could have achieved in any other way in a decade. Hyperbole? Perhaps. It certainly did wonders for her career and visibility as a reporter. For the remainder of Nellie Bly's life, Any stray one-sentence bio about her almost always included some derivative of the girl who became famous for her trip around the world in 72 days. It's the most talked about part of her career, portrayed as the pinnacle of her achievements, aside, of course, from her investigation into patient treatment at the Blackwell Island Lunatic Asylum. There's just one problem with that assessment of her career. Nellie Bly was just getting started. Welcome to the life of Nellie Bly, part two. It is absolutely true that Nellie Bly's trip around the world changed the nature of her work profoundly. It was a watershed moment that shifted the trajectory of her writing career. The fame and admiration she garnered effectively quashed any chances of undercover investigative reporting for the time being. She was arguably the most recognizable female reporter in the United States, quite possibly the world. However, she didn't receive the enthusiastic welcome home that she had expected from the New York world. Joseph Pulitzer didn't offer her any monetary bonus or pay increase, which left her furious. It was well known that this, quote, stunt around the world had increased the New York world's circulation tenfold. She promptly quit the New York world, and decided to explore fiction writing. A newspaper editor named Norman L. Monroe offered Nellie Bly a three-year contract to write fiction for his New York family story paper. At the time, serialized fiction was massively popular in the late Victorian era. The deal Monroe proposed underscored Bly's potential as a moneymaker for his paper. Per Brooke Kroger's biography on Bly, Monroe offered Bly a salary of $10,000 for her first year with the paper, 
and $15,000 per year for the remaining two years of the contract. $10,000 in 1890 has the purchasing power of about $270,000 in 2021, just to put that into perspective. If financial stability was what she was after, she certainly achieved it during these three years. Most of what's written about Bly during these three years is summed up with the words, failed fiction writer. Even Brooke Kroger underscores this. Quote, it was a fabulous contract. One Monroe who had not bothered to determine if Bly had the makings of a fiction writer, doubtless lived to regret, end quote. There's only one problem with that assessment, and that's the fact that Nellie Bly had already written and published a fiction novel. Bly titled it The Mystery of Central Park, and she published it before she went on her trip around the world in 1889. A small snippet from the newspaper The Tennessean, dated November 11, 1889, confirms this. Quote, Miss Nellie Bly, whose interesting novel, The Mystery of Central Park, was reviewed sometime since, objects to having the work honored as a literary debut. Because, she says, she hopes to do some great deal better work. Surely that intention, so candidly expressed, entitles any work of hers to honorable mention. It is the right way to look at things, and her admirers are confident that her hopes, backed by her characteristic determination and undoubted ability, will not fail to be fulfilled. End quote. I find it extremely hard to believe that Monroe, who dealt in fiction, didn't know about this fiction novel. Of course, it's entirely possible that he offered her that enormous contract based on her reporting work and her famous name. But I just find it very hard to believe. Regardless, Bly spent the next three years writing fiction for his paper, all of which was thought to be lost, until recently. While working on his books about Nellie Bly, author David Blixt found 11 lost novels penned by Bly. I have no idea if all of these came from the three-year stint at the Family Story paper, but if it's true, Bly was unbelievably prolific. She was already a prolific writer even without her novels. I'm sure any writer listening right now is just as astonished at the prospect of writing 11 fiction novels in three years as I was upon learning about it. What stamina. David Blix is publishing these previously forgotten works next week. That is the third week of March 2021. Personally, I'm excited to check out Bly's novel that was inspired by her interview with the famed fraudster Eva Hamilton, wife of Alexander Hamilton's grandson, Robert Ray Hamilton. It's my understanding that most, if not all, of her novels were inspired by real-life stories that she reported on. Make sure to check out davidblix.com for more information. I'll go ahead and link that website in my show notes below. In 1893, probably exhausted from writing 11 fiction novels, she put her frustrations with the New York world aside and went back for another three-year stint. She came back with a roar, not a whimper, interviewing some high-profile figures. Her first byline back showed up on the front page of the world on September 17th after she obtained an exclusive interview with the high priestess of anarchism, Emma Goldman. An interview that would have been particularly interesting to the world's working-class readership It was the first time Goldman was interviewed for a mainstream daily press, and it was a big get for Bly. Why was this important, and what made it a killer story for Bly's first piece, Back at the World? Well, in 1893, 
The United States and much of the rest of the world was plunged into a depression caused by what has been named, quite originally, the Great Panic of 1893. There were several reasons for the panic and the depression that followed. But what's important for our story here is that the unemployment rate in the United States skyrocketed to 20%. This obviously caused severe financial hardship for the working class, who in turn started listening to political leaders outside of mainstream American politics. Goldman was a gifted orator and a harsh critic of the, what she perceived as the flaccid attempts of labor leaders to aid the down and out. And during a speech in Union Square in New York City on August 21st, 1893, police alleged her remarks incited a riot. She was awaiting trial for unlawful assembly when Bly interviewed her. Now, Bly had a talent for asking the right questions. She humanized her interview subjects, and she told the stories of a wide variety of political and social figures, including suffragist Susan B. Anthony, the president of the American Railroad Union, Eugene Debs, and various leaders within the corrupt New York City political machine, Tammany Hall. And that's just to name a few. In July 1894, Nellie Bly went to Chicago to cover the Pullman Workers' Strike. Chicago in the 1890s was the place to be. The Columbian Exposition in 1893 helped Chicago achieve worldwide recognition as a cosmopolitan city. The growth of the city was staggering. The population of Chicago increased by 600,000 in the 1890s alone. But with that kind of growth comes vast wealth gaps among its people. And that was something that Chicago was known for. The country was still very much in a depression in the middle of 1894. It would be for the next three years. And George Pullman, owner of the Pullman Car Company, was thought by many to be a model employer and workers' rights activist. George Pullman, railroad tycoon and philanthropist, had even built a town for his workers right outside of Chicago in the 1880s. He was known for providing decent housing with good amenities and good wages, which is why it was shocking for many when over 100,000 Pullman Company workers walked off the job in May of 1894. The disruption was felt throughout the country. Rail travel and shipping ground to a halt. The longer it went on, the more desperate and angry people became. By early July, violence and rioting broke out outside of Chicago, and crowds destroyed a train car full of U.S. mail. Now, it was this action that prompted President Grover Cleveland to issue a federal injunction against the American Railroad Union, preventing them from speaking to strikers and forcing railways to resume operation. Fear of the disruption of the mail, delivery of goods and services, as well as skyrocketing costs, also curtailed public support. The New York world sent Bly to get the scoop. She had a well-known reputation for being a truthful advocate for the working person. But Bly herself admitted she was skeptical of the striking workers. Quote, I thought the inhabitants of the model town of Pullman hadn't a reason on earth to complain. With this belief, I visited the town, intending in my articles to denounce the rioters as bloodthirsty strikers. Before I had been half a day in Pullman, I was the most bitter striker in town, end quote. As Bly walked around the Pullman town and interviewed workers, she reported the following bits. Quote, I wish you would state my case, spoke a man. It has been claimed by Mr. Pullman that his workmen were not required to live in Pullman. I am what they call an inside man. I am what they call an inside wood finisher. I used to make $3.25 a day. 
I was cut to $1.40. Then I moved out of Pullman. I got a five-room cottage for $1. Then I was laid off. There was no work for me. When I asked why, the manager told me if I would move back to Pullman, I would not have to lose a day's work. It was either occupy a Pullman house or do without the work. These workers also put George Pullman's charitable endeavors into perspective. Quote, The time Mr. Pullman donated $100,000 to the museum, said a clever girl who sat beside me. His manager came out to the works before 10 o'clock the next morning and made a cut in every department in the Pullman shops. He also made a cut when he put the $42,000 monument before his house in Chicago and when he donated $75,000 to build a church in Auburn, New York. He cut the girls the next day from 22 and a half cents to 17, end quote. After the strike was put down by the federal government, union workers faced hiring discrimination. Pullman only agreed to rehire striking workers if they agreed to never join a union again. Perhaps as a consolation prize, Grover Cleveland declared Labor Day a national holiday. Nellie Bly's coverage of this event was some of her best work. It allowed her to forge connections with labor leaders like Eugene Debs, who she didn't meet during the strike, but later interviewed the following January while he was serving prison time for his role in the strike. It's around this same time that Bly met a bachelor named Robert Seaman while she was in Chicago in early 1895. Robert Seaman was a 70-year-old industrialist and a retired grocer with several million dollars in capital and real estate in the state of New York. According to one newspaper, he happened to meet Bly while they were both in hospital in Chicago. Around this time, Bly started having chronic health issues, lots of bouts of pneumonia, bronchitis, stomach issues. But she reportedly met Robert Seaman while she was seeking care for a particularly nasty case of pneumonia. At that time, she was writing temporarily for a Chicago paper, and Robert was busy, I guess, being a millionaire. He was largely hands-off at this point, leaving a team of hired managers to oversee business dealings within his manufacturing business called Ironclad. He was a perpetual bachelor until he met Bly. Likewise, until she met Robert, she had enjoyed complete independence into her 30s. The relationship was only a few months old when they married in April 1895. Papers declared them Mr. and Mrs. Nellie Bly. Before I get into her marriage, I have a short newspaper clipping from the Philadelphia Inquirer titled Something About the Girl Who Is Going Around the World in 75 Days. Quote, Nellie Bly is a woman past schoolgirl age. She was 25 when they would have been writing this and not yet at the quarter post of old maidism. She is, so far as appearances go, a very ordinary, everyday young woman, rather slight in form, leaning to eccentricity in dress, masculine in her tastes and ideas, and a man-hater from way back. That may sound strange, but it is true nevertheless. Beyond business relationships with the male sex, Nellie Bly has no further use for them. She has never been in love with any human being on Earth except her mother, and to make this mother comfortable and happy is the one thought that actuates her in every undertaking. Why am I reading this to you? Well, one, it's outrageous, and two, opinions like this lovely one I just read from the Philadelphia Inquirer were not at all uncommon. In fact, 
I'd argue that the statements the paper made echoed the views of the majority of the country at this time. Robert Seaman's family despised Bly from the very beginning. I wonder if they ever read something like this written about Bly. They treated her like a gold digger who was only after Robert's money. They probably assumed that as a woman on the tail end of maidism, as the Philadelphia Inquirer put it, she was desperate for a man. The couple moved into Robert's brownstone in Manhattan. At the time, Robert shared this house with his brother Edward, whom Groger described as an alcoholic who was often under the care of his siblings. The first year of their marriage was a nightmare. Bly refused to dine in the house with Robert. Robert had her followed. At the height of their tensions, Bly hailed a police officer down to have a tail arrested. It ended up being an employee of Robert's. It turned into a battle of the wills. Robert obviously wanted her to submit. According to Brooke Kroger, Seaman altered his will on Christmas Eve in 1895 and allocated just $300 for Bly while giving $10,000 apiece to his two nieces and a mysterious third woman who was not a part of the family. He also refused to honor what I assume to be a premarital conversation, during which he promised to financially support Bly's mother and Bly's widowed sister-in-law. We have to remember that Nellie Bly got into journalism because she needed steady work to help support her family, namely her mother. The Philadelphia Inquirer got one thing right, and that is that she was deeply devoted to the care of her mother and making sure her mother was financially supported. It's clear that he was trying to assert his financial dominance over Bly to get her to understand her place in his life. But Bly wasn't having any of it. She went right back to reporting for the New York Worlds. And you know who she went to interview? Susan B. Anthony. How fitting. Or is it? Susan B. Anthony was a champion for women's suffrage, a symbol of women's rights, at least for white women. This is a woman that remained married to her work and no other for her entire life. Perhaps Bly was sizing her up. Anthony's life as a single woman devoted to her craft until the end of her days might very well have become Bly's reality if things with Robert didn't work out. The irony is that Bly was not a suffragist. She didn't care a thing about the vote. She only decided women needed the right to vote about 15 years later when she got eviscerated in a court of law over her business dealings. She realized she had almost no way to fight back. But more on that in a minute. Somehow, Bly and Robert found equilibrium by the end of their first year together. Perhaps they needed some distance from New York and the prying eyes of Robert's siblings. They hopped a ship for Europe in mid-1896 and stayed away for over three years. By the year 1900, Robert's health was declining. He was losing his sight. He relied heavily on Nellie for support. By 1901, the couple had returned to New York, and Nellie was managing Ironclad, a position she relished. She had advertisement cards made that read, quote, The Ironclad factories are the largest of their kind and are owned exclusively by Nellie Bly, the only woman in the world personally managing industries of such magnitude, end quote. She took over as president of the company when Robert finally died in 1904. Nellie Bly said of her marriage, quote, I married for experience, and I got more experience than I expected. I went into it a good deal like an assignment, but it was a mistake. That one time where my policy of thinking out my assignments proved an error. End quote. Now, most of what is written about Bly in these following years 
is typically pretty scant, with the exception of Brooke Kroger's fabulous biography called Nellie Bly, Daredevil Reporter, Feminist. Came out in 1994, and if you haven't read it, it is definitely worth your time. Most of my information about Bly's business dealings came directly from her book, so go check it out. I think it's on Kindle Unlimited. I read numerous sources that slapped the label on Bly as a, quote, failed businesswoman. But it actually looks like she had a talent for business. She at least had a dogged work ethic and enthusiasm for it. She garnered the reputation of workhorse, fueled by 12-hour workdays and her claims to have led the company out of debt by the time Robert died. She obtained patents for various products, including a milk can, a stacking garbage can, and a 55-gallon steel drum. Per Burt Kroger, Bly had 25 patents under her name by 1905. Per size.org, quote, her steel barrels ultimately became the ubiquitous 55-gallon steel drums of today, and she should be remembered for her unique contribution to America's petroleum industry, end quote. She ended up naming this portion of her business the Steel Barrel Company. Maintaining her pro-workers' rights image, Bly also made improvements for the welfare of her employees, such as having better office accommodations built, including a rec center. She changed their pay structure from piecework to salary. Employees who were interviewed about her, specifically the company manager, said Bly knew how to operate all of the machines on site and made the plant more efficient by upgrading to electricity. It's interesting to note, though, that it's during this time in Nellie Bly's life that is said to have been F. Scott Fitzgerald's inspiration for the great Gatsby character, Ella Kay. And if you've read the classic, you'll know that portrait is not exactly flattering. Ella Kay is a journalist having an affair with another character who eventually cheats Gatsby out of 25 grand. Company sales were positive during her presidential tenure at Ironclad. But by 1910, Bly had become aware of a forgery scam that was defrauding the company. Worst of all, it was championed by Ironclad's manager, Major Edward R. Gilman. Gilman had worked for the Seamen since 1899, and by 1910, he was at the very least a dear friend of Bly's, and at most, her lover. They were close. She took him into her home and cared for him while he slowly died of stomach cancer. Several employees were implicated in the scandal, and this little clique weaseled millions out of ironclad by forging Bly's signatures on hundreds of checks. She had no choice but to declare bankruptcy, and several years of unbelievably messy and unproductive court proceedings began in 1911. She would eventually lose most of her money. Despite the legal mayhem of her life, Nellie Bly was still an active journalist. In 1912, while dodging contempt of court warrants, Bly covered the Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Chicago and Baltimore, respectively. She rode horseback in the D.C. suffragist parade in 1913. She tried to keep the Steel Barrel Company out of Ironclad's bankruptcy proceedings by declaring it was a separate entity entirely. But the truth was, it was more of an offshoot of Ironclad versus a, a separate entity. Materials, cash flow, and labor of the Steel Barrel Company was so meshed with Ironclad that it was hard to tell where one company ended and the other began. Bly stuck to her story in court, however. She repeatedly refused to answer questions about the Steel Barrel Company, so much so that she was eventually charged with contempt of court. 
numerous arrest warrants were issued for her, and she was also dodging angry lawyers. In her view, they did nothing for her, so she wasn't going to pay them. Finally, as a last-ditch effort to secure funds to save her steel barrel company, and perhaps capitalizing on an excellent opportunity to get out of the heat for a bit, she sailed to Europe in 1914 to appeal to an Austrian friend named Oscar Bondi for financial help. Unfortunately, World War I started four days before she left. By the time Bly got to Europe, her objective had changed. She was going to get to the war front in Austria and become one of the first women to report on the front lines for the United States. To get to the war front in Austria, Bly had to pull some strings. She set herself up at a swanky hotel in Vienna and started writing letters and getting introductions with fancy folks all over the town. It just so happened that she had a long acquaintance with the American ambassador to Austria. By October 1914, she was headed to the front with a handful of other war correspondents. She reported on the front lines for the New York Evening Journal, and she wrote shockingly vivid descriptions of the death and destruction on the front lines. Quote, I could only view the bloody bandages with the most helpless horror. It was as if the last day had come, and one could not change or better the inevitable torture. Imagine a man with a bullet in his lungs, or head, or arm, or a bit of shrapnel in his chest or abdomen, or his arms or feet torn off, lying in the trench for days without one soul to tie up his gaping wounds or hand him a bite to eat. Bly's time on the Austrian front only lasted about a month. And when she came back to Vienna, she became obsessed with helping widows and orphans displaced by the war. She stayed in Europe for the entirety of World War I. She didn't come back to the United States until 1919. And then she only came back because her business dealings were in tatters. Everything was made worse by the fact that Bly had been an enemy Austria for the entirety of the war. And because she had had her mother put the American Steel Barrel shares, upwards of $50,000 worth of American Steel Barrel company stock in Bondi's name, it at that point was now vulnerable to be seized by the United States government as enemy assets. Her mother, Mary Jane, whose loyalty and dependence has shifted from Bly to Bly's brother Albert in the four years that Bly was in Europe, actually sued Bondi in a court of law to regain control over the shares for herself rather than return them to Bly. The experience ruined their relationship and they never reconciled. Her mother died a short while later. There was a criminal forgery case brought against her former employees, but that was eventually dismissed, which effectively squashed any hope she had for a civil suit. Bly was penniless upon her return from the war. Out of necessity, Bly started writing a column for the New York Evening Journal under editor Arthur Brisbane for a salary of $100 per week. Now, the column she wrote lasted for three years, and she showed up in the news for various charitable efforts in which she acted as an impromptu social worker, placing orphan babies with families and supporting single mothers. Bly claimed to have facilitated adoptions of thousands of needy infants to loving homes, but her methods were not always well received by the establishment. An unofficial social worker placing children into unvetted homes could have serious consequences. She even advertised children she had up for adoption in her editorial column. 
She took her new mission seriously, and as Brooke Kroger points out, neglected her health. Bly took ill with pneumonia in January of 1922, and after 18 days in St. Mark's Hospital in New York City, Nellie Bly died at the age of 57. The newspaper world mourned. Joseph Mulvaney published a several-column tribute in the Washington Times in which he called her, quote, an ardent feminist and, quote, the best newspaper woman who ever lived. Arthur Brisbane of the New York Evening Journal declared her the best reporter in America. Many years after her death in 1967, the Pittsburgh Press analyzed 11 newly discovered letters from Bly to blast from the past Erasmus Wilson of the Quiet Observer, the confrontation that started her entire career in journalism. They had remained friends for the rest of their lives. Erasmus Wilson had died just a few weeks before Bly. They wrote letters back and forth, though none of Wilson's letters are said to have survived. Bly's letters indicate a kind relationship between the two. She often signed off as your kid and treated him like a father figure. This is in spite of his bullheaded views that women shouldn't work. How did a career woman maintain a friendship with someone who thought like that? For one, her own thinking and thoughts and feelings and beliefs were complex and often contradictory. Her views changed as she encountered new experiences. After witnessing an execution in the 19-teens, she publicly denounced capital punishment. After working as an unofficial social worker in her ragtag homemade orphanage, she became an active supporter of birth control. Bly's views were also laced with xenophobia, and as Kroger points out, quote, she even warned Americans against marrying foreigners. Bly wrote, like belongs to like. Different nationalities cannot marry and find happiness and compatibility. As for children of such unions, Bly declared they were, quote, as wretched in their way as children born to parents of different race or color. That tells me Bly was very comfortable in the segregated society that was the United States in the early 1900s. Bly's views on working women had also been altered dramatically since her early days for the dispatch. Bly wrote in her column, quote, No home can be a home where the wife and mother work outside. No marriage life can be ideal or true or worthwhile where the wife and mother goes to business. No children can be cared for and brought up and developed as they should where mother works downtown, end quote. This seems like a stark departure from her early views on women and work and wildly hypocritical given her own personal history. Despite the aforementioned flaws in her feminist thinking, I think Nellie Bly's real contribution to feminism is being the living embodiment of self-belief and perseverance. I think she truly believed she was a feminist in the purest form. She was boots on the ground in the fight to help the helpless. She helped women get jobs, orphans find homes. She worked to elevate those that had no one to fight for themselves, provided that she deemed them worthy. The story of this woman has captivated me for months. And what I've discovered is that Nellie Bly is a truly complex and fantastically flawed figure. And summing up her incredible life in two 30-minute podcast episodes was difficult. You didn't get the full story. There's so much more to know. So if you want to, if you want something new to read and you want to continue to read about Nellie Bly, I want you to head to my website, darknostalgiaworks.com, and find the tab in the drop-down for Feminist History Podcast. You'll find a complete source list for this episode 
under the webpage titled Nellie Bly Part 2. There's also a contact form if you want to send me a message with episode suggestions or a comment. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I want you to head to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. It is seriously helpful and a free way to support the Feminist History Podcast. Folks, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. I'm your host, Maggie Coomer. I'll see you next time.